Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, are you a moody Christian? Do you, in other words, do you trust your moods or do you trust the evidence? Do you always look for some sort of emotional confirmation that you're a Christian or that God is somehow working through you, working in your life? Or do you trust in the evidence that has already been provided through the scriptures that Christianity is indeed true and that there's evidence that the scriptures are indeed true? Last week, we talked a lot about faith. What is faith? We answered questions like, uh, first of all, what is faith? Is faith blind? Doesn't the Bible say faith is the conviction of things not seen? What is the relationship between faith and reason? Is there a difference between knowledge and certainty? And do atheists just lack a belief in God, or do they have faith as well? And we pointed out that everyone has faith. And I can't go through all what we covered last week again. Go back and listen to that. But this is going to be a bit of a continuation, because I got an email actually about a month ago. I just had the opportunity to get to it now. A question, and by the way, if you'd ever like to submit a question to us, just type a question to hello at crossexamined.org. That's hello at crossexamined.org. And you're listening, by the way, to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Anyway, I got this question from a sheriff's dep deputy. He does not want me to reveal his name, but he was very complimentary of our podcast and also Greg Kokel's tactics book and the books that Jay Warner Wallace has written. But he said this. He said, I've heard you say on your podcast that you should not only believe that God exists, but you have to believe in him. This sheriff said, in my logical mind, I wholeheartedly believe that God exists and that Christ died and was resurrected. I believe the evidence is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then he says, but I find myself having a hard time believing in him when I should. He said, I've often preached to inmates and used my beliefs to comfort families and victims of crime and accidents. I've done death notifications and used what I have learned from you and others listed above to help those people when you just have to have faith or, 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 or when you say just have faith is not enough. He says, I feel a great sense of passion when I preach and talk about Christ and using apologetics. Many people have told me how passionate I sound uh, while speaking on apologetics and the existence of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said, I feel close to God when I do it, but sometimes, well, actually most of the time, I just wish I had someone to preach to me like I do to other people. And then this sheriff's deputy said, in my line of work, I get down, way down sometimes. So my question is, do you have any advice on what I should do to help me with the belief in part? I know that God exists and Jesus died and was resurrected, that I should put my case for it in front of a jury in a second, 
But when things are quiet, when I'm trying to fall asleep, I'm finding myself having a hard time believing in him. I want that. It helps when I sleep to an audiobook of yours, or yeah, my books can put you to sleep, definitely. And uh, <laughs> and talking to God, uh, I, I feel an anxiety rise more than in a lot of situations I've dealt with at work. I feel like I'm not making that connection I should. And I feel like I'm doing something wrong, like God knows I'm having a hard time believing in him. I hope this email explains and you can understand what I'm trying to ask. Thank you for your time and God bless. Again, this is from a sheriff's deputy. His, his identity is being withheld. And uh, I can't answer all of this right now because I think there's a certain perspective that I don't have that my friend Jim Wallace has, Jay Warner Wallace. So I actually called Jim on this, uh, Sheriff, and I'm going to send you his contact info. He wants to talk to you about this because he has experiences in this field that I don't have. But in, in speaking to him, he said a couple of things, and then you'll have a more in-depth conversation with him. Uh, he said, first of all, being in law enforcement can cause you to become very negative because you only see the worst of humanity, especially if you're always on patrol. You need to you need to rotate out of patrol. You need to ask for a transfer to get into a po positive environment because you don't want to get your identity just from your job. Uh, and you don't want to have your identity in your job drag you down all the time. So you need to rotate out. Look, you're a Christian serving as a cop. You're not a cop serving as a Christian. Your primary identity, in fact, all of our identities, for everyone listening right now, if you're a Christian, your identity is in Christ. That's your primary identity. It's an identity you don't achieve, you receive. Christianity is the only worldview where it, where it says you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. And if you put your identity in your job, what happens when your job goes away? Are you no longer a person with an identity? No, your identity is secure in Christ. And so you have to put your identity in Christ. And let me say other, another thing about the difference between belief that and belief in. Uh, belief that, as we've talked about and we mentioned last week, is, is not just, uh, or let me put it another way, belief that is evidence that Christianity is true. That's apologetics, which you're very familiar with. You get evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that the scriptures are telling the truth about what Jesus said and did. And then you'd make a decision to go from mere belief that to trust in or belief in. Even the demons know that God exists, but they tremble. They don't trust in him. And the scriptures say this. Uh, this is from Romans chapter 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul goes on to say, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all richly, is, is the Lord of all, and richly blesses all those who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a fact. You don't have to have a feeling associated with that. Belief that is of the head. Belief in is also of the head. But it's also of the heart. It's, it's, it's not just believing that something is true. It's trusting in it. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have a feeling that goes along with it. I mean, feelings may come from believing in or trusting in, depending on your personality. But feelings aren't required or necessarily evidence of your decision. Look, I'm not a very emotional person on these things. 
My friend Jim Wallace isn't either. And in fact, when you talk to him, he will say, look, I don't have all these, these feelings about uh, God and all this. I mean, I know intellectually that God exists and I trust in him for my salvation, but feelings don't necessarily flow from that, not continually anyway. You, you shouldn't be waiting for a mood or an emotion to confirm a decision you've made. It might come, and many people have those moods or have those emotions, but that is not the evidence or that is not required for you to know that you believe in, that you trust in. You don't need the emotion to go with it. You have the intellectual affirmation in your own mind that you not only believe that Jesus is the Savior, but you are trusting in him for your salvation. And so feelings may come, feelings may go, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need a feeling to affirm what you've already decided. In fact, it was Martin Luther who said, feelings come and feelings go. Um, how did he put it? Feelings come and feelings go, but feelings can be deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. This is, by the way, why the Proverbs say, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Notice the proverb, that's Proverbs 4.23, doesn't say follow your heart. It says guard your heart. You may have feelings come, you may have feelings go. The key point, though, is the facts, the truth. And if you've accepted Christ, you're saved. And I'm going to mention what C.S. Lewis says about this brilliantly, I might add, right after the break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, back in two. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. Today, I'm asking the question, are you a moody Christian? Do you trust your moods or do you trust the evidence? Do you rely on feelings to discover whether or not Christianity is true? Or do you look at the facts? Do you look at the evidence? And before the break, we were talking about a, uh, a sheriff who wrote in and said he was having trouble going from belief that to belief in. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to take a look at what C.S. Lewis said about this, because uh, Lewis, as you know, has said so many things so well. And in Mere Christianity, he talks about what happens when your mood changes, Here's what he said. Let's, uh, let's track along with Lewis here for a few minutes. He says, Supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, and it, he means Christianity, I can tell that that man, or I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. Here's what Lewis says. He says, There will come a moment when there is bad news or he is in trouble, or he's living among a lot of other people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief, or else there will come a moment when he wants a woman, or wants to tell a lie, or feels very pleased with himself, or sees a chance of making a little money in some way that is not perfectly fair, 
some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. I'm not talking about moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have to be faced, and that is a different matter. I'm talking about moments where a mere mood rises up against it. Now, let me stop right here. You know, mere mood might be the fact that you're expecting a mood to arise in you that confirms Christianity as being true, right? It might be, you might be thinking, well, why don't I have more feelings? Or why haven't I had the sense of the Holy Spirit that, that I sense other people have? And you might think, well, that means Christianity isn't true anymore because I don't have what my neighbor has. And he or she says they, they have these feelings for God all the time. So maybe, maybe I'm not really a Christian. That mood might come up, in other words. All right, let's go back to Lewis. He says, now faith, in the sense in which I'm using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change, whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable, unquote. Again, this is from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Yeah, moods come and moods go. Feelings come and feelings go. But what about the facts? In fact, fads come and fads go. And yet there are so many people in our culture today who want to jump on the latest fad, even if it contradicts what Christianity says, because they are tossed to and fro, as James said in his little epistle, tossed by every new thing that comes along. Anyway, back to Lewis. Here's what he says. He says, this rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. And here's a key point, he says. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of digestion and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith, unquote. Again, this is C.S. Lewis. One must train the habit of faith. Even if you're an atheist, yes, atheists have faith. If we're using faith in the sense that you can't explain everything and verify everything, you have to have some measure of faith, some measure of trust. You have to, you have to do that, regardless of what position you hold. Christian, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever it is. Agnostic, you have to have faith that you can't know, right? How do you know you can't know? So you, you have to have some level of faith. Now, obviously, as we mentioned last week, faith doesn't mean that you have no evidence. In Christianity, it means trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. Trusting in what you have good evidence to believe is true. You have good evidence, but you don't have exhaustive evidence. You can't verify everything. And I'll say here a little bit later in the show that even scientists can't verify everything. 
There's some measure of faith where you have enough evidence to trust in what you have good evidence to believe, even though you don't have every question answered, you don't have every T crossed, you don't have every I dotted, you don't have every question that you've ever thought of completely answered to your satisfaction. And, of course, James, as I mentioned a minute ago, talks about this. And James talks about this when he is discussing trials. The very second verse of, of his epistle, chapter 1, verse 2, says, Consider it poor joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Time out. Who, who really considers trials a joy? Well, James is saying you ought to count it joy. Not that the trial is pleasant, but it's going to bring maturity to you. It's going to produce perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives it generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. By the way, one of the ways you get wisdom is you study the scriptures. That's the primary way. Why would we have the scriptures if God was going to tell you directly what to do every day? Why would you have a book of Proverbs, for example, if God was going to tell you what to do every day? No, the primary way God communicates is through the scriptures. Doesn't mean he can't do other things. He can, but the primary way he does it is through the scriptures. That's why he's given it to us. Anyway, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double minded and unstable in all they do double minded and this is i think that's pretty much the the theme of the of the epistle of james don't be double minded trust in christ and live like you really trust in christ don't be in and out don't be halfway go all the way and this is why lewis says look you've got to once you, your reason has accepted something is true, you've got to tell your moods where to get off. Because if you don't, not only will you not be a, a good Christian, you wouldn't even be a good atheist. <laughs> he says that is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never either be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. And, of course, James is talking about it in the context of being a Christian. Now, how do you do this, by the way? And here's what Lewis says. Lewis says the first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. As, and, and as a matter of fact, says Lewis, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned, reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away, unquote? Yeah, they drift away. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 2 says, 
We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We can easily drift away, especially in our culture. There's so many distractions that can cause you to drift away from the truth, that can cause you to drift away from Jesus. In fact, not just drift away, be enticed away. Be pulled away, be lured away, be trapped away. James also talks about that's how we get, we sin. We get enticed by our desires. We get lured away. And so we have to continually study, pray, fellowship with others, meditate on the scriptures, and continually look at the evidence for Christianity and the theology, the main doctrines behind it, to be confirmed in what we believe. Otherwise, feelings can come. Moods can come and can drag us away. This is why, again, I think one of the most powerful and necessary verses in the entire Bible today is, as I mentioned, in the book of Proverbs. I just mentioned it before the break. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. Where is your heart? Where is your center of your, of your, of your direction in life? Doesn't mean that the, the organ pumping blood in your, in your chest. He's talking about the center of your direction. Guarding it. You know what your direction should be if Christianity is true. Are you following it? Or are you continually being pulled away? Are you, are you being pulled away? Are you drifting away? Are you enticed away? Are you lured away? By moods. In fact, when we come back from the break... This kind of reasoning and this kind of faith is necessary for relationships, including a marriage relationship. But be before we get to that, I want to mention I'm going to be at Truth for a New Generation Conference in Myrtle Beach, October 15th and 16th. Then University of Cincinnati, October 18th. These are all open to the public. Uh, I'll be at Northwest Missouri State College, Lord willing, November 3rd. And I also want to mention, this is the very last day almost, you can get in the pro-life course, The Ethics of Abortion, because the first Zoom is Monday night. You want to be a part of that. We only have three seats left with the great Scott Klusendorf. And then engaging LGBTQ conversations with compassion and clarity starts October 18th, another online course. You're going to want to be a part of that. You don't want to miss it. So don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about how mood can affect a relationship and how you need faith in order to move forward. We're back in two. Are you a moody Christian? Do you follow your moods or the truth? Do you follow your moods or the evidence? You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. And I just read a portion of uh, Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis, of course, famously wrote on this issue. And he mentions, look, you've got to keep these things in front of you. You've got to keep prayer in front of you every day, the Bible in front of you, evidence for the faith. you got to have fellowship with others. In other words, you got to maintain your faith. Otherwise, you can be enticed. Lord, you can drift away from the truth. And the same thing is true 
not only with your relationship with Jesus, but with your relationship with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whomever you're in a relationship with. You need the same trust augmented by habit in a marriage relationship that you do in a relationship you have with God. In fact, as you know, that marriage is an illustration of our ultimate relationship with God. You have to be reminded. You have to work at it. You have to stay connected to one another or you can drift away. This is why, by the way, and Lewis points this out elsewhere in Mere Christianity and his fabulous chapter on marriage in there, he says, this is why you need a vow. Why do you need vows? And, and, and by the way, when you get married, what, what is the vow? Do you vow to feel a certain way for the next 50 years? No, you can't vow feelings. You might as well vow I'll never get angry or I'll never get hungry. You can't vow such things because love is not a feeling. Now, feelings may be associated with love, but love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a choice to seek what's best for the other person. That's what love is. And you can vow your behavior. You can't vow your feelings. You can't vow your moods. You can't vow your emotions. So when you get married, you're vowing to love the other person in action, in behavior, not in feelings. Now, thankfully, if you do love the other person, even when you don't like them, the feelings can flow from that. But the feelings aren't necessarily necessary for you to love someone. You can love someone with not having feelings for them. In fact, Christ says, love your enemies. Do you have good feelings for your enemies? No. It would be impossible to love your enemies if feelings were required. So you need the vow, and the vow is behaviors. You also need the vow when you're tempted, when you're doubting, when you don't like the other person. You don't need the vow when you have all the feelings of infatuation that you first had when you first met your husband or your wife. You know, those feelings of being in love. You don't need a vow when, when you have those feelings. You can't, you can't be pulled away from the other person. You need a vow when those feelings are gone or when they, when they dwindle, when they diminish. And thankfully, they do diminish. Not that you don't have some positive feelings toward your spouse. I do. Even sometimes giddy feelings. I do. But they're not continuous. They're not like they were when we first met. And thankfully, they're not. Why? Because you couldn't survive. If that were the case, what would become of your work? What would become of your other relationships? What would become of, of other things you needed to do in life? If you were completely consumed with thoughts for the other person and you couldn't do anything else, your heart beating like a hummingbird all the time, and you couldn't survive five years of that. And Lewis, I don't have it in front of me, but in Mere Christianity, he says, he says, look, that feeling of infatuation, that feeling of being in love is a wonderful feeling, but you can't base a whole relationship on that because you, you couldn't have any other relationships. You couldn't accomplish anything else in life if that consumed you. He said that feeling may be the explosion that started the relationship, but it's not the engine that keeps it going. The engine that keeps it going requires behaviors of love toward the other person. 
not just feelings of infatuation. So when you vow, and well, he also makes the point, I don't know, actually, I don't know if he makes this point in this chapter in Mere Christianity, now that I think of it, but here, here's a point I'd like to make regarding it. You only need the vow when you don't have the feelings. That's why you take a vow. That's why, because when the, when the feelings subside, because you, look, you're a broken person, the, the other, your, your spouse is a broken person too, and when you put, put two broken people in one relationship, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be moods, there's going to be emotions, there's going to be irritants, there's going to be things that don't work out the way you want them to work out, and you're going to have to work all through that. Otherwise, you're just going to go to and fro from one relationship to the next, and the feeling's going to go in the next relationship. And then when you leave that one, the feeling's going to go eventually in the next relationship because you have a false expectation that love is all about feelings. And it doesn't work out that way. Look, yeah, the grass may look greener with uh, someone who lives across the street, but you need to remember that all grass needs mowing. Okay? All relationships take work. And that, it causes us to grow and become more like Jesus when we actually have to work to love other people rather than we just have feelings of infatuation for them. So just like your relationship with Christ, you have to guard your heart with, with other people. If you allow your emotions to govern your relationships with people those relationships aren't going to last very long. They're going to explode. They're going to blow up. You've got to guard your heart, not follow your heart. If you follow your heart and every whim you have, every, every person you find attractive, and you run off with that person, forget it. Your, your life is going to be in shambles in short order. So above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. And no, God isn't telling you to leave your husband. And no, God isn't telling you to leave your wife unless there's real abuse or something like that or there's a, there's a justifiable excuse, a just, or I should say a justifiable, uh, justifiable exception. You know, divorce, they, they've run off with somebody else themselves. Okay, then yeah, you can leave or there's been adultery or that kind of thing or horrific abuse. Yeah, we get it. But you would be surprised how many times pastors hear, oh, my my, or God told me to leave my wife or God told me to leave my husband and, and none, of the, none of the exceptions or none of the justifications for a valid divorce exist. No, no, God didn't tell you that. You're relying on your moods. You're relying on your emotions. You're not relying on the word of God. Look, the will of God is never contrary to the word of God. The will of God is never contrary to the word of God. If you're getting an impression or something from, uh, that, that, that contradicts the word of God, that impression is not coming from God. You know, there's another side out here. There's a demonic realm. And where God puts a period, let no man put a question mark. Let me say that again. Where God puts a period, let no man put a question mark. If he's given you certain commands, that's a period. You don't, you don't need to question. You don't need to pray about something he's already told you to do. Oh, God, should I love my wife? He's already told you to do that. Oh, should I tell somebody about Jesus? He already told you to do that. You don't need, should I, should I go be a missionary? He's already told you to do that. <laughs> I mean, to spread the gospel, in other words. You don't need to pray about those things. I'm not saying don't pray about them. I'm saying you don't need to pray and ask, should I do it? He's already told you to do it. And he's already told you what not to do. 
Let me go back to this issue of being of drifting away, as Lewis said. He asked the question, don't if, if you look at a hundred people who left Christianity, was it because they were reasoned out of it or did they just drift away? And we see a lot of high-profile deconstructions nowadays, and I submit to you, most of that is based on mood. It's, in other words, it's based on social media. It's based on what people's friends say. Deconstructions, the ones that I've seen, almost always involve mood changes. Friendships with people are nearly always more important to people than friendships with God. Let me say it again. Friendships with people are nearly always more important to us than friendship with God. We're more apt to, uh, to agree with our, what our friends say about a moral issue than what God says about it. And I've never seen a deconstruction that, at least these high-profile ones anyway, that didn't have something to do with sex, something to do with, with, with biblical sexual ethics, with LGBTQ matters, or with divorce, or with, uh, uh, with, with what they perceive to be a restrictive, a too restrictive ethic on sex that Christianity has. That's too restrictive. I don't want that. So I'm just going to say Christianity is not true anymore. Now, they won't come right out and say that. They're going to try and say, oh, no, I was reasoned out of it. But the ones I've seen somehow always wind up talking. They're, they're kind of reverse engineering it. Oh, well, since we know that sex between same-sex individuals is a good thing now, then the Bible must be wrong. So therefore, I'm no longer a Christian. Rather than really looking at the evidence to see if the Bible had it right all along, and the natural law which says so, and saying, oh, Christianity's true, even if there are things about it I don't like about it. In fact, think about this word submit. What does the word submit mean? Nobody likes this word. Nobody likes it. Well, let's break it up. Submission. What does submission mean? Well, first of all, what does mission mean? Mission means that there's a goal, there's a purpose. You ought to be doing something. And sub just means you're putting yourself under that goal or mission. Now, if there is no God, there is no mission. There is no objective mission. There's no right way to live or wrong way to live. Things just happen because there's, there's no meaning to life. Things just happen. Everything's descriptive, not prescriptive. We just die and become worm food. It's over. But if God exists, there's a true mission. What's the mission? To know God and to make him known. To love God and love one another and tell other people about him. And make people more like Jesus. Make disciples. There's no greater mission out there than the true mission. If God exists, that's the true mission. If Christianity is true, that's the true mission. Have you investigated to see if it's true or not? If it is, you would be foolish not to submit your personal mission to the true mission. You would be foolish to say, oh, I have my own mission in life. Forget what God says. I'm going to do my own thing. That's foolishness if Christianity is true. Christianity is true. In fact, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about some reasons why it is and why the New Testament writers actually declared that they had seen all this. They're, they're not making this up. <laughs> they're actually believing that Christianity is true because they saw things that told them it was true. And if you really want to learn the evidence for Christianity, you really ought to 
Enroll in Southern Evangelical Seminary. That's where I went, ses.edu. If you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank, you'll get a 10% discount on your first course. Check it out back in two. Welcome back to the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist radio program on the American Family Radio Network and podcast. And if you're listening to this on podcast, if you would be kind enough to go to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple or anywhere else, and put a positive review of this podcast up, it helps move it up the charts. More people will see it. Also, recall that we have a YouTube channel, over a thousand videos up there. Many of them are short Q&A videos from the college campus. If you subscribe and turn on notifications, you'll also get a notification when we're going live on a college campus. The next one is uh, November 18th, and after that, November 3rd. So do that. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and turn on notifications, and you will see and get a notification when we're about to go live. We also go live uh, very often on Thursday nights for the Hope One Show. We just had Jim Wallace on this week for his great book, Person of Interest, which if you don't have, you need to get. All right, let's talk about, we're talking about, are you a moody Christian Uh, Do you base your beliefs on your moods, your emotions, or the evidence? Well, look, the New Testament writers really have put forth in their writings the idea that they were eyewitnesses. Let me just read some of the passages where they say this. Many of this is in the book of Acts, the book of the activities, you might say. Really, Really, it's the history of the church from about when Jesus ascends to heaven all the way to about 62 AD. Luke, who is an amazing historian, has been verified in so many different ways to be writing accurate history, writes what happens in the early church. And here are some of the things he writes. This is from Acts 2.32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact that maybe Peter's speaking, actually, but Luke, Luke is recording this. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 4, then the rulers and teachers of the law called upon them again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 5, the next chapter. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him on his own right hand and as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And they go on to say, Uh, Acts 10, we are witnesses of everything we did in the country or he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. In fact, hanging him on a tree, they never would have invented that. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy, if you're hung on a tree, you're under God's curse. So they wouldn't have invented this. You're under God's curse if you're hung on a tree. That's what the Jews believed. And of course, Jesus was under God's curse, the curse of sin that we put him under. But if you're inventing a Messiah, you don't hang him on a tree. Then, of course, in the great creed that goes all the way back to the alleged resurrection itself. This is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, where it says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, said Paul. Now, Paul would have 
just shot his credibility straight through writing to the Corinthians if he said there were 500 people that saw this, saw the risen Jesus, and you could check with them. Many of them are still alive. He would have totally blown his credibility if that hadn't happened. Peter, of course, says this in 1 Peter 5. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as appear as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering. He says in 2 Peter, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, in John 19, says, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. And then he actually says, after Thomas says, Wow, I've actually seen the Lord. He says, my Lord, my God, after he puts his hand in, his, in Christ's side and his hands in his, in his hands, in his wrist there, he says, because you have seen me, Jesus says, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are, re which are not recorded in this book. And then he goes on to say that he did these things so that you may believe that Christ is the Savior and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. The purpose of the Gospel of John is to tell you all the things they witnessed to confirm that Jesus was the Savior. And of course, 1 John 1 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at with, uh, which with we, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now you get the impression, don't you, that these folks wanted everyone to know that they actually saw something. I mean, they're not making this up. Furthermore, the Luke and the writer of Hebrews claim to be informed by eyewitnesses. Luke, in the very first verse of his gospel, his biography says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says, this salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him and testified by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. They're saying they've seen this. They're not saying they were inventing this or they're making this up. Why would they say all this and then go die for it? Why would they invent all this? First of all, they didn't believe a man could claim to be God. That was blasphemy. Second of all, they didn't believe that, that uh, a resurrection would occur in the middle of time. They thought a resurrection would occur at the end of time, but not in the middle of time. Look, they had no motive to make this up. They didn't get sex, money, or power for saying this was true. Those are the three universal motivators that might cause people to sin or to lie or to cheat or to invent stuff. They didn't get any of that. They got the opposite, and they said it was true. You say, well, I'm a scientific person. I, I have to believe in science. Well, <laughs> wait a minute. Even scientists can't verify everything. Did you know that? That most of what you believe, you believe on the testimony of others. That's true for everyone, including scientists. No scientist can verify everything for himself. 
You can't run all the experiments and do all the forensic work necessary to verify every historical question yourself or every, even every empirical question, whether you're a scientist or not. You rely on the testimony of others, especially if they've proven themselves to be accurate and not have ulterior motives that would cause them to lie or influence them to lie. If there's corroborating data out there, you would, you would generally believe people. You do this all the time. When you're driving, you see a green light, you're going through it. You're not stopping to make sure no one runs the red light. You can't prove no one's running the red light, but in your prior experience and your faith that people are going to obey the rules, you just plow right through that light. When you go to a restaurant and they put food in front of you, even if you go to a store and you buy store, you're, you've got faith that's, that's not poisoned. Can you verify it's not? No, you can't. You walk into buildings all the time. You don't know if they're safe, but you assume they are. Why? You've got prior experience. You can trust people. In relationships, you can't verify what everybody's thinking or doing all the time. You have to have a certain amount of trust, a certain amount of faith in those people. You put your money in the bank. You don't know. If, is that money going to vanish? Are they going to say, you never deposited this money, sir? When you get investment information from your broker or somebody, your financial advisor, he says, this, this is a good investment, this company. Their earnings look like they're going to be good. Can you verify that? How do you know they're not lying? How do you know they're not cheating? You don't. But you generally accept the testimony of others. Certain medical diagnoses. You go to a doctor. You might get a second opinion. But still, you're going to say, okay, yeah, I got cancer. I don't know if I have cancer. This guy telling me I do. Right? You get prescription meds. How do you know the prescription's going to work? How do you know it's the right prescription? It's the right, his it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the right medicine for your problem. You're relying on testimony, the testimony of others. And what happens in history? You can't go back in time and verify it. You have to rely on testimony from people in the past. That's true for so much of what you believe. Now, when you have enough evidence and prior experience to believe that certain activities and certain assurances from other people are safe and true, you believe it. You go with it, even though you can't verify them personally. Everybody has a certain amount of faith, a certain amount of trust, no matter what you believe. And when you look at the New Testament, despite your moods that may change with your digestion or with circumstances, or with your state of health, or with something that happens to you and you, 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 you get shaken by it. Despite all that, Jesus has still risen from the dead. Despite all that, God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. Those are the two facts you need to, you need to really look into, because if God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if you don't feel it's true, even if your moods change, even if circumstances change. Even if your friends don't agree, even if you're unpopular on social media because of it, it's still true. And if you believe that it's true and trust in what Christ has said, you're saved. In fact, even if you don't have evidence for belief that, even if you blindly trust in, you're still saved. That's not what God wants you to do, but you're still saved. You just might not be a good enough disciple, <laughs> You might not be a good enough disciple to share the truth with others, to show the truth to others. You can know Christianity is true and not be able to show it, but he wants you to be able to show it too. 
And that's why you need the evidence. So are you a moody Christian? I hope not. We all have moods that go up and down, but don't rely on your moods. Don't rely on your psychology. Rely on the evidence and you will be saved. All right, I'm Frank Turek. Great being with you. Don't forget about the two courses coming up. Last chance for the abortion course. The LGBTQ course starts on October 18th. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and Lord willing, I'll see you here next week. God bless.